Um, welcome everyone to Jersey Spring Programming and the continuation of Robert David Silver's uh, last journey through Genesis. Um, Robert Silver, as I'm sure you all know, is the founder of Nutrisha, and he received ordination from Rabbi Isaac Elhanan Theological Seminary. Um, he's the, a recipient of the Covenant Award for Excellence in Innovative Jewish Education and is the author of Passover Haggadah, Go Forth and Learn. And for such a time as this, with biblical reflection from the book of Esther. He's also a nationally acclaimed lecturer on the Bible. Robert Silver is married to Dr. Deborah Steinitz. They have eight children and live in Riverdale, New York. Um, we're going to continue with Robert Silver's uh, class about Joseph and his brothers. Uh, as always, we encourage you to ask questions, um, either by raising your hand or by putting questions in the chat, which I'll be moderating. And if you're comfortable doing so, we'd love for you to turn on your cameras and actively participate in the class. Um, over to you. Okay. Um, okay, it's not really necessary to give my whole bio. Uh, I think people know me, but but I would add that I actually have a third book which came out recently in Hebrew. In English, it's Human Kingship. So it just came out recently. So that's the important dimension. That the rest of it is, I think. You know, most people know, it's, thank you, it's, but it's not really necessary, but we do have that Malchut Adam book, which came out recently, Kingship in the book, as reflected in the book of Samuel. Okay, very good, thank you. So let's begin our class today, and we're going to begin with chapter 37 of Breshit, Genesis chapter 37, and this way begins the story of Yosef, and this is a story that will be We'll be studying till the very end of, of, of Reishit. Um, so let's begin. Chapter 37, verse number one. So the first verse, Jacob was dwelt or settled in the land where his fathers had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And that verse, Jacob dwelt in the land of his sojournings, sojournings of his father, in the land of Canaan, which is the first verse of chapter 37. But the point of the first verse 37 is that is it is, it is in contrast to what we read in chapter 36. Because in chapter 36, towards the beginning of chapter 36, it says in verse number six, that So Esau, in that verse, in 36, verse number six, voluntarily leaves the land. He takes his wives, his children, all his possessions. He goes to a different land. And then verse number eight, Esav dwelt in Mount Seir. Esav is Edom, the land of Edom, a different land. So Esav has left the land. And now we start <coughs> chapter 37. Vayeshev, the Vavir is a disjunctive, but by contrast, by contrast in chapter 37, verse number one, but Yaakov, on the other hand, dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings, Eretz Migurei And here the key point is the difference between Esau, who actually possesses his own land, and Yaakov, who by contrast is living in the land of his father's sojourning, 
Ger, Mugurei Aviv. Yaakov lives in a land in which he does not possess. It's someone else's land at this point. He may be possessing it in some symbolic sense, but he doesn't actually possess the land. He is, one might say, a Ger. He's, he's a resident in someone else's place as opposed to Esau. And this recalls the covenant. The blessing of Esau is in the here and now. Esau has great success in the here and now. And the blessing of Yaakov, the covenantal blessing, is all about suffering in the present in order to secure the future. So verse number one of chapter 37, when you read it by in and of itself, it's relatively innocuous. But when you read it in the context of the previous chapter, it's not innocuous at all. It's making the claim that unlike Esau, who has left the land, who has no claim upon this covenantal space, Yaakov does have a claim, but the claim also involves being a stranger and a sojourner and dwelling in the land of Migurei Aviv, where his father was a stranger, a ger, Lagur, temporary residence, not really his. Ewa Todot Yaakov, chapter 37, verse number two. This is the story of Jacob, the history of Jacob. And once again, over here in chapter 37, verse number two, we have a contrast to Esau. This is a very important point about reading the Torah, which is that if you think about the Torah, we think about the Torah as Rashid is a set of stories. Every so often there's a genealogy which interrupts the stories. That's one way to understand it. Then there's another way to understand it. The Torah basically is a set of genealogies. But every so often, the when the Torah has an interest, it stops the genealogy and it tells a story. So in chapter 36, we have Toldote Sub. That's how chapter 36 began. The Ewa Toldote Sub Uedom. And chapter 36, and again in verse number seven, the Ewa Toldote Esav Aviyadom in verse number nine, Bahar Seir. In other words, what chapter 36 consists of, essentially, is a bunch of names. There are no stories in chapter 36. It's names. Now we come to Jacob. Uh, the Torah has an interest in Yaakov. He's the covenantal person. He's the hero of the book. He's Israel. So Ewa Toldot Yaakov, and instead of simply giving us a list of names, it starts with a story. Ewa Toldot Yaakov, and the next word is Yosef. As if the Torah is saying, we're not going to simply tell you the descendants of Jacob. In fact, chapter 35 already mentioned Jacob had 12 children, etc., 12 sons. But we're going to tell you a story, because when the Torah has an interest in the person, it tells a story. And the story begins with the first word is Yosef. He's going to be the main character in all of these chapters, from chapter 37 to the end of this book, will revolve around Yosef. Now the Torah will give us an introduction to Yosef. We'll begin the story of Joseph in chapter 37. And then suddenly in chapter 38, there's a different story, Judah and Tamar. And the Torah will resume the story of Yosef in chapter 39. So let us proceed now. It's a story that many of you have studied with me, maybe more than once. Hopefully we'll see new things, hopefully, one never knows. 
Okay, I'm going to pause every so often and take comments or questions. You can either unmute and speak up, or you can put it in the chat, and Chaya will relay it to me. Okay. Now we start with Eilat Todot Yaakov, chapter 37, verse number two. Yosef, ben Shva Esrei Shana, hayoroet echav batzon, v'hunaret b'nei b'rav y'ebnei z'opan l'shei aviv, v'yavei Yosef et dibatam ra'ah el'avihem. So we'll start with Yosef. We already know about Joseph. We know something about Joseph. We know that Joseph is the eldest son born to Rachel. We remember, if you don't remember, I'll refresh our memory, that the moment Joseph is born, Joseph is not the first son who was born. Joseph is, in fact, the 11th son who was born, next to last son who was born. In fact, he's the 12th child that's born. There's one girl who's mentioned by name, Dina. But the moment Joseph is born, back in chapter 30, and Yaakov is in the house of Lavan, Yaakov says to Lavan, I want to go home. He didn't say that after the first 11 children were born, but he says it after Yosef is born. And the reason for that is he had come, he had run away from home. One of the reasons he ran away from home was to find a wife. The wife will produce the next generation. And the moment Joseph is born, Yaakov sees himself as fulfilling that role of producing the next generation. You see, from, from the onset, that for Yaakov, this child, who was Rachel's child, Rachel's child, is the, is, the, is the child he sought. And we have to remember, of course, and we all know this, Rachel was the woman he actually wanted to marry. It's very complicated. He loved Rachel. He wanted to marry Rachel. Lovan manipulated it. He ends up with Leah. Complicated story to other women as well. But Joseph was the one. Upon the birth of Joseph, says Jacob to Lavan, I want to go home. Mission accomplished. Now he doesn't go home. Lovan entices him with an offer he can't refuse. Maybe he should have refused it. That's another story. And now we come back to Joseph. Now, what does the Torah tell us about Yosef? Number one, he's 17 years old. We keep that in mind. The Torah usually doesn't tell us how old somebody is. Uh, in the book of Breshit, it didn't tell us how old Yaakov was. It didn't tell us how old. It tells us how old Esau is when he gets married. It doesn't tell us how old they are in the various stories. And with Yosef, the first thing we are told about Yosef is that he's 17. Now, the question we ask ourselves is why? What is it about 17? And presumably, there are actually two reasons for it. Number one, because as this verse will say, Joseph was 17. He is a shepherd with his brothers in the field, right? He shepherds the flock. So in that first, if you think of it as a picture of Joseph, you can see him in the field with all the brothers. The 17-year-old, young, the youngest one, perhaps, or next to youngest one, with the brothers. Then we have the next picture. Buhunar, he's a young man, 17. Buhunar et b'nei Bilha v'yet b'nei Zilpa n'shei Aviv. Together with the sons of Bilha and Zilpa. Bilha and Zilpa were the two, one might call them concubines, servants. Earlier they're called Amahot or Shvachot. Here the Torah called them wives. It's very interesting. 
So he seems to hang out, and they're certainly not the primary children of Jacob. In fact, Don and Naphtali and Asher and God, the four children of the Imahot, do not figure in the, in the narrative in Genesis at all, actually. There were, of the 12 sons of Jacob, six of them figure in the, in the biblical narratives. There's Reuven, there's Shimon, there's Levi and Yehuda, the four oldest children of Leah, and Yosef and Binyamin. Those six children will figure in the narratives of Genesis. So one might say that the sons of the Shvachot, here they're called the wives, are the, are the lesser children, if one can say that. So in this picture, the first image of he's with all the brothers in the field, and the next picture is you see Joseph with some of the brothers. He hangs out with the younger ones. They're the younger ones, they're the less significant ones. That's picture number two. And then we have the end of this verse, and Joseph brought back What does Dibatam Ra'a mean? Um, here they translate Dibatam uh, Ra'a. He brought back reports of them to their father. But Diba Ra'a is not simply a report. Ra'a is bad. He brought back to Jacob a bad report. Now the question is, the Torah doesn't tell us what the bad report is. Something bad that is either being done or being spoken by them and very unclear who the them is. Is the them all of the brothers? Is the them the younger brothers? Unclear. And the Torah doesn't tell us what he's saying or what they're doing. But we know from elsewhere in the Torah that Dibara'a is a very bad thing. In fact, the spies were sent into the land to bring back report of the land. The Torah speaks of what they did is Dibata'aret. They brought back evil report of the land. And that crime is a crime that gets us, does not permit the people to enter the land of Israel and to wander in the desert for 40 years. So Dibara is certainly from the Torah's standpoint to speak evil of the other person or Shon Hara or whatever it is, is a bad thing. So now we have this picture of Joseph. He's a, he's a youngster. He's a Nar, he's 17. He seems to be in this picture exactly with whom he hangs out is not clear. Is it with all the brothers? Maybe just some of the brothers. And he brings back an evil report, which is certainly not a good thing. So the, our first description of Joseph that the Torah has given us is certainly not a positive one. Uh, and the question is, this focus on 17 and being a nar, how does that fit into the picture? Uh, I, I would, could suggest a couple of different scenarios as to what nar might mean, but I would say that perhaps over here, the Torah is, if not defending Joseph, not justifying Joseph, but saying it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sin of his youth, actually. He's a, he's a youngster, and he does things that perhaps that youngsters might do which are inappropriate, but he's not a full-fledged, he's a child, as it were, a young man who makes the mistakes that young people make. 
But certainly what's striking is that Dibara'a is without question a, a negative. Let me make a suggestion about what, what Dibara'a means over here. There are various midrashim about Dibara'a. Um, what is that? Some commentaries and midrashim assume that what he's telling Yaakov, their father, is bad things that they are doing. Either they're doing bad things, or according to one view, he reports back that the older brothers are maligning the younger brothers. That picks up on the verse, and it will explain why he mentions both older brothers on one hand and the younger brothers on the other. That's only one possibility. There is, however, another possibility that I like very much, and that dibara'a means evil speech, like dibur. But what he's reporting back to Jacob, perhaps, is not so much what the brothers are saying about the younger brothers, but maybe he's reporting back to Jacob what the brothers are saying about Jacob. Because we know at the very end of chapter 34 in the story of Dina, that when Jacob accuses Shimon and Levi of, of acting wrongly, of sullying him, or maybe even betraying him, and the last verse of chapter 34 of Ayomu, they said, said, shall we treat our sister as a prostitute? And it didn't say Vayomru go, they said to him. It sounds like they said to each other about Yaakov. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, what's he talking about that we shouldn't have done this? What's our sister? We had to defend our sister. She's our sister after all. So potentially then, we know the tension that exists between the son of Jacob's sons and Jacob. That's clear. And maybe what Yosef is doing then is reporting back to Yaakov what the brothers are saying about Yaakov. Be that as it may, whatever it may be, one thing is not disputed, cannot be disputed. In the Bible is a very bad thing. Again, we can excuse it as a sin of youth. He's 17 years old. Now, there's something else about 17 because the Torah didn't have to mention 17. The Torah does mention 17, which is an adolescent, as it were. But what is very interesting is that 17 years is also the number of years in the end of the book of Reishit, we are told that Jacob went down to Egypt. That Jacob dwelt in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So what's interesting then is that Joseph's first 17 years were spent with his father, and Joseph's last 17 years were spent with his father, right? But the intervening years are not spent with his father. So let's come, we're going to come back to that in the future, because one of the critical questions in the story of Joseph, of course, will be the relationship of Yaakov and Yosef. That's how the story begins. This is the story of Jacob, Joseph. First word is Joseph, his beloved son. And the question will be, their relationship will be one of the central motifs and one of the central issues that we'll, uh, we will encounter in our study of Breshit, which after all is going to be about the formation of Yaakov's family. Yaakov had taken the vow to build the family. And the family is already beset with all kinds of tensions. And at the center of it will be Joseph. Let's take one more verse before I stop and take comments and questions. And we have the next verse. It's a very striking verse. 
The next verse is, Yisrael ahavet Yosef mikobanav. He vends the kunim ulam. V'yasolo ketonet pasim. Israel, Jacob is sometimes called Jacob and sometimes called Israel. Maybe in the sometime in the future, we will reflect upon when he's called Israel and when he's called Jacob. We know his name was changed. He remains Jacob, however. It says, Jacob or Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. He bends the kunimlo. Literally, he was a child born in Jacob's old age. In other words, he wasn't, the, actually, when you read the Torah, Joseph is not presented in the Chumash as being that much younger than the other sons. Jacob fathers 11 children in the time he's in Lavan's house. He's only in Lavan's house for 20 years. So he can't be that much younger than the others. Maybe he's a year younger or whatever. So Ben Zekunim doesn't necessarily mean chronologically. But we have to remember he was the son born at the end of Jacob's sojourn in Lavan's house. And importantly, he was the son born to Rachel, who was Jacob's beloved. So that probably is included in, in this idea of Ben Zekunim. The Midrashim claim that Ben Zekunim means not just born in his old age, but Ben Zekunim, he had a certain wisdom to him, which was possible, not impossible. So Jacob loves one son more than the others. We know from our study of the book of Genesis that demonstrating favoritism of one son over the other can lead to some very problematic behavior. The first set of brothers we encountered in the Torah, Cain and Hevel, they brought sacrifices to God and God favored one over the other. And the net effect of that was the death of the son that the brother that God had favored, the death of Hevel at the hands of Cain. Okay, but that's human nature. We can't always control our loves. We love one more than the other. We may, may not be able to control that, but we can control something else. And this is the problem in this pasuk. He made for Joseph a ketonet is a robe or a coat, pasim. Some translate pasim as multicolored. Some translate pasim, pasaya is the palm of the hand, a long sleeved coat. But the coat in Genesis and beyond, certainly in the book of Shmuel, is often, and the Torah, is identified with a certain standing. The people that wear special clothing in the Bible are two kinds of people. They are priests, the Kohanim of Big Day Kahuna, and the high priest has the most special clothing, and then the king, the leadership. So what Jacob does over here, okay, he loves Joseph more than the others, can't control that. But what you can control is an overt demonstration that you love one more than the other. And in giving Joseph this special coat, what he has said in effect, he's not hiding it. This is my special son. This is special son. And that is problematic. It's one thing to love Joseph more than the others. It's another to favor him. And of course, every reader is struck by the fact that the end of the previous verse said, by he brought back evil report to the father. Now, we don't know if the brothers know that or not. It's impossible to tell that the brothers know what Joseph is secretly reporting to his father. Maybe they don't know. But we, the readers, certainly read the two verses, one after the other. And what it sounds like 
one can read it as he loves him more than the others. And not only that, he's rewarding him for bad behavior. And that's highly problematic. I'm not suggesting that the brothers know about the Gibara. We have no evidence they know. It never says they know. But we are inclined, certainly we, the reader, know. And we read these two verses, one after the next, and we say to ourselves that it strikes us, I think, as problematic to give the one who's reporting back to me all the bad stuff that either doing, these brothers are doing or saying, and to publicly reward him and demonstrate that he is my favorite son. And remember, this is a man, Yaakov, whose mission in life is to build the inclusive structure. Everybody's got to be included. And now it sounds like he's doing something which potentially can lead to the disruption of the family. When I say disruption of the family, it's already in the process of uh, disintegrating, given the fact that in chapter 35, Reuben sleeps with one of his wives and that Shimon and Levi have criticized him very sharply. So, and of course it will get worse, obviously, but the family is in the process or potentially of dissolving. And this is the person who has taken the vow to build this inclusive structure. So the behavior of Yaakov or Yisrael, as he's called in this pasuk, from that perspective, is very problematic. And I'll read one more verse, which confirms what I just said. It says, the brothers saw, they see the coat. The brothers see. And they hated him. That's a strong word. Sino is a strong word. They hated him. Now it means they hated him, presumably refers to Joseph. However, it could also secondarily him. It's not, it's not clear. It probably is Joseph. But it could also be potentially not only Joseph. They could not speak to him with shalom peaceably in a friendly way. So basically, we have uh, two statements over here. We have on one hand, Joseph speaking to his father and bringing Dibara, that's negative. And on the other hand, we have one set of brothers who can't speak peaceably to their brother. It reminds us very much of a story in the book of Shmuel, namely the story of Avshalom, who's angry at his father. He's angry at his brother who has raped his sister. Tamar, who also has a katonet pasim, and what Avshalom does is for two years, he doesn't speak to his brother. At the end of two years, he kills his brother. So we have here a potentially extremely explosive situation in the beginning of chapter 37. Let me stop here for a moment and take any comments or questions one may have. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, when he says um, uh, about bad speech, um, could it be that uh, he just gives a negative report? It's not a lie, but he does give a negative report. And maybe with the spies also, they gave a negative report. They emphasized the negative. It wasn't a lie. Right. That's true. I remember my mother told me, I remember when I was a little child, that she was telling to her father, my grandfather, who was actually a very big Talmud Chacham. Anyway, so her, my mother said, 
my mother reported to me. She said to her father something bad about somebody. He said, that's a Russian horror. He said, that's a Russian horror. She said, but it's true, father. He said, then it's, uh, then it's, uh, MS, then, then it's MS Russian horror. That is truly Russian horror. Russian horror is not false. Russian Motsi Shemra is false. Russian horror is true, actually. But it's very destructive. The truth can be destructive. It depends why one, that doesn't mean there's not room for criticism and there's not room for confronting people, but going behind their back and telling other people, even if it's true, typically is not useful. There are times when one makes public statements when it comes to policy. There's a whole discussion about this, but yes, I'm not suggesting that what he's saying is false. I, I didn't mean to suggest that. I don't think I did suggest it. Could be every single thing he says is true. But first of all, when one constantly picks up on the negatives and he's not telling them, he's telling his father, their father, with the, and, and, you know, the effect of which would be simply to distance them from, from their father. So yes, of course, that's a good point. By the way, if the suggestion that I made is, is correct, I'm not sure it is, but if what he's reporting back to his father is what they're saying about him, the Talmud has two different words for that. What, what, what you've described, when I say bad, bad things people are truly doing, that's Roshona Ra. But to report to so-and-so, I go to a third party and say, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so is saying very bad things about you, you know. Uh, that is what they call rechimut. And the Gemara, in, the Gemara suggests that's even worse because you create an enemy that you create an enemy between the first person and the third person. <laughs> in other words, not just reporting bad stuff, but you're saying to this person, you know, so-and-so, oh, what a very nice person. I'm surprised you say that, given all the bad things that he, uh, that he, that he says about you. That's called rechimut. So what I was suggesting is more in terms of rechimut and the other possibility is what we call Rashon Hara. In either event, it tends to be destructive. What the spies say about the land, by the way, is, is actually true. The people in the land are stronger than we are. That's absolutely the truth. There's no question. Uh, you know, etc. The suggestion about the spies, as they call, as the Ramban says, is not that they didn't tell the truth. But there is, it's their, it's, it's their interpretation of the facts, and that's what Yeshua says. Yeshua says it's all true, but if God is with us, we we can still win. Yeshua never disputed the facts, by the way; he disputed the interpretation. Um, okay, anybody else? Thank you for that comment. Yes, I just wanted to say that um, this idea of him being benzakunim, the already exhaustion and the frustration. Seems as if he never thought there would be a binyamin, and by then, of course, there was, uh, you know, the spirits were low, and he was also feeling so elderly. But I mean, it's as if he didn't expect the the last right. one. Oh, he might not have expected the last one. Remember, and that's actually a very important point we'll get to later. I mean, we've seen it already in the past. The name Joseph, which is the name given by his mother Rachel, she, she gave two reasons for the name. But one reason was Yosef Hashem li benacher. God should give me another child. So whether Jacob wants, wants or thinks about another child, his mother Rachel certainly wanted another child. 
because the name Joseph means God should give me another child. That's actually a very important point. Uh, but we'll get to Binyamin later on, who figures very prominently in the story. Is there anybody else with a comment? Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking strongly about the association of Dibatam Ra that the Torah sets up to the, to the story of the spies by the use of this language. Yes. And, it, and it occurs to me that perhaps what is actually going on is that Joseph is reporting to Jacob the Dibatam Ra of, that his brothers are, uh, which, is, which is how they're conducting themselves, which might be a disqualifier for the inheriting of the land and something that Jacob would need to check and to straighten out. It's, so it again points up a failure of leadership on Jacob's part to not, to not actually, uh, you know, to not jump in with executive function, similar to the failure of David. Um, it's certainly yeah. possible. There's no, look, it's certainly, the, the connection to the spies, which you point out and Tova pointed out, is certainly there. It's the same language. Um, I, my, my suggestion actually, to, to a certain extent, touches upon that because the point is that chapter 34 ended with, if I'm right, the brothers saying something about Yaakov. Yaakov did criticize them, but the problem is that tension remains. And then the question is, and it is very striking that the story of Dina is about the conquest of the land. So maybe the Torah is actually raising a question about you know, the conquest of the land. The point of the conquest of the land, presumably, the land is a place where people are supposed to be able to live together. And if you enter into the land with all kinds of internal, you know, uh, rivalries, quarrels, etc., tensions, you won't be able to maintain the land. So clearly, it's part of the larger question of how will it be possible, or will it be possible for Jacob, and I, that is the central question, can Yaakov somehow bring everybody together? My only point I'm making is that the, the, the main problem that Jacob has in bringing the family together is that the main person who stands in his way is Jacob himself, because the behavior over here is certainly on his part very problematic. To reward the one who brings the Dibara and not to step in and try to handle it and work it out, I will, we'll see as we read through the story. But, that's, that's but, if, you see it, but if you see it the way that, I, that I'm seeing it, actually Joseph has already functioning as a Bechor. Mm -hmm. And he is being recognized as a Bechor <laughs> by the father. Mm -hmm. And that's appropriate. That's not inappropriate. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. If it's appropriate or inappropriate, that may, may or may not be the case. The, to the Torah, the, what do you mean? The, to the Torah system is that there is a Bechor and he's the right. spiritual leader of the family. Well, it's hard to call him a spiritual leader of a Nar who brings back Lash and Hara. There's he's no way to suggest that. Well, that's why, that's no why I put it together with my first comment. He's straightening, he's but trying I, to straighten out the family. Well, I don't get that sense at all about straightening out. I, I don't see the straightening out here. And Dibarad cannot be good. It simply can't be good. There's certain words like it's like Tumma. It's their Dibatam Ra. They're the ones who are Dibatam Ra. It doesn't matter. It's unclear. It doesn't matter. Well, how does it get fixed unless the executive knows about it? It, it doesn't matter. That I'm saying that's not the way to fix things. I don't think the Chumash here is, is, is 
suggesting, well, we'll see as we read through it, that his, he's trying to, to preserve the family through his behavior. Yes. Um, I, just to, to respond to, to the Diba Tamra'a and that, and, and the, what, we were, what the gentleman was just saying, I think that the Torah is, is saying that both sides are in a negative valence here with the Diba, because remember what was said, uh, that it says, lo yachlu dabro, Shalom. So on the brother's side, they couldn't even greet him and say, hi, how are you? I mean, they're Shalom. That is just, they couldn't bear him. They couldn't speak to him. They couldn't speak to him properly. And then on the other hand, we have Dibara'a. So I think that the Chumash, the valence of the Chumash is that this whole idea of the manner of speaking, what you say and can you say and can you not speak to one another? I think that that whole thing is is it's like saying a pox on them. Look at this mess of speech and non-speech and evil speech and bad speech. So I actually think I'm su supporting your point that the Dibara'a is bad stuff. And I'm supporting it with the fact that the Chumash has it on the other side too. Well, I mentioned that before, that is also negative. The larger point, which I'll state now is this. I don't, I think the point of the Torah here is not to blame any particular person. It's not to say that the problem in the family is Joseph. It's not to say the problem in the family is Jacob. And it's not the problem in the family is the brothers. The problem is all of them. It's a story in which the Chumash will parcel out. The problem is that every, every part of this story, we can fault every single person here. We can fault Joseph, we can fault the brothers, and we can fault Yaakov. And the point of it is that the Chumash is very even-handed because what the Chumash wants to set up is the question, how do you resolve all of these problems? And if you're gonna resolve all the problems, we have to fix everything. We have to fix Joseph and the brothers, the brothers and Joseph, Joseph and Jacob, Jacob and Joseph, and the brothers and Yaakov and Yaakov and the brothers. And that's gonna be the, the, the hard part of it, which we'll get to. So I do believe that the, what the Chumash is setting up is not to blame any one person, it's all his fault. No, I think it's a question of people getting along or, or failing to do so. But now let's, let's pick up, let's continue our story here in verse number, whatever the next passage is, I can't even read it. Now Joseph had a dream and he told his brothers, and they hated him even more. Interesting, of course, the Chumash plays with the word they increase the hatred and his name is Yosef. In other words, what I would say, whereas the, the initial hatred could, is presented as a function of their father favoring the other guy, rightly or wrongly, because he was a Ben Zekunim, and it touches upon the family. We know that Yaakov loved Rachel more than Leah. Leah said about herself, she was, she was hated, she said it. God sees my suffering. Okay, so we know that. But over here, the initial hatred is because the dream, and they hate him even more. Well, let's see why they hate him. He says to them, listen to the dream I had. I want to tell you my dream. We were literally sheaving sheaves or binding sheaves. And is the verbal form of the noun, which we often have in Hebrew, in the middle of the field. But my sheep rose up and stood up above the others. 
and your sheep surrounded my sheep, and bow down to my sheep. So he doesn't interpret the dream. He's telling them his dream. And what's interesting is the expression, ma'omim alumim. Very, very strange expression. We don't have it any other place, ma'omim alumim. But it clearly, when you hear the expression, read it here, ma'omim alumim, it does recall for us a similar term that we had earlier in Sefer Breshit, to when Rebecca had twins. She was expecting twins and she went to seek out God. And the all God says, or the oracle says, right? One nation shall be more powerful than the other one. They're talking about Yaakov and Asa. One will, they're not going to get along. One will be stronger than the other one. And it's actually somewhat ambiguous. The greater shall serve the younger, or maybe means the younger shall serve the, the greater. Unclear. But what is clear is they'll be in constant conflict. So now you have this dream that Joseph has where one sheaf stands up and all the other sheaves surround it and bow down to it, right? That was, that was the blessing of given to Jacob, right? Your brothers will bow down to you. So Joseph's dream recalls, for at least for us, the reader, the story of Yaakov and Esau. And it seems that the dream is saying that on one hand, his Joseph is preeminent and that the others, in fact, will bow down to him. Now, Joseph doesn't say that. He simply reports the dream. It's not even 100% clear that Joseph himself understands his own dream. He somehow he feels compelled to tell them the dream. And they say to him, the brothers actually end up interpreting the dream. What? You're going to be the king over us? You're going to rule over us? And they hated them even more. Even more. The second time by Yosifu. They hated him for two reasons. First of all, for his dreams. And secondly, for his words. And I presume for his words, it could mean, hypothetically, going back to the beginning of the, of the, of the chapter, and he would bring back report to his father, but probably it means more likely, they resent the fact that he has such dreams, and they doubly resent the fact that he tells them his dreams. You have those dreams, keep them to yourself. What are you telling us your dreams, which for the brothers at least, are the interpretation of which is actually transparent. And uh, the question is here, I think, and of course the commentaries are wondering about this, why was it necessary to tell them the dreams? What is it about that? Why must he tell them the dream? Why is it important that they know the dream? And they certainly resent it. There's no question, and Torah is very explicit about this. They hated him even more. By Yosifu Otsunoto, we have to remember that the default in this book is that brothers potentially are rivals. And they're certainly rivals in the case of Cain and Hevel, who is the beloved of God. And they're rivals in the story of Yaakov, of course, in who is the most favored child. And we know that Yaakov favors Yosef to begin with. 
And now we have the double, the hatred and the additional hatred. So we have here a extremely explosive situation. Um, interesting is something else that the story, the dream that Joseph uh, says, he talks about being together and we all remember that the story of Cain and Hevel, the, the killing of Hevel by Cain, the Torah said in chapter four, and it came to pass when they were in the field. So the point is that we have before us a, a potentially very, very difficult or uh, dangerous situation. And here, I just wanted to suggest that they are, um, I'm not saying a defense of Joseph. I just wanted to uh, make a point about a, a rabbinic understanding of Joseph. The Torah said earlier, he was 17 years old, he was a nar. The Gemara, Rashi quotes twice in his commentary on Breshit in conjunction with Yosef, he was a young man, and Rashi comments, Ose Masen Narut. He would he would act like he would act like a like a child, like a young person. He would act foolishly. What would he do? In one of the examples, he would stand in front of the mirror and kind and, and play with his hair, the salsel basaro. And what's interesting is I'll come back to that in a different context of the salsel basaro, but the point is. The, the image you get of somebody standing in front of the mirror, Misalsel Basaro, he's not a vicious person. He's not trying to hurt the brothers. Somebody who's self, who's 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 preoccupied with himself. It's a kind of narcissistic kind of behavior. He's oblivious to people around him. He has no intention of hurting them. He's very excited about this dream that he had. Oh, I had a great dream last night. What's that? I am standing in the field, you're all groveling in front of me. What an exciting dream. And without taking into account how the people on the other side might understand it. And we look at it this way, we don't see him necessarily as cruel, but it's much more sort of self, self-occupied or preoccupied with oneself. That I think is how the Midrashim uh, tend to see it, uh, which would be, you know, it's not, it's not, defending Joseph per se. We'll come back to later on about this idea of playing with his hair, because that's actually very interesting. And Rashi quotes it twice in Sefer Breshi. So this is it. And he, he does seem to be oblivious to how the other people are actually hearing what he says, because in the very next verse, he has another dream. He continues along the same path. Mm -hmm. He has another dream. And he tells his brothers, I have another dream. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to me. Now we read this, he has 11 brothers, and you read this dream, it doesn't seem you have to be a, a great interpreter of dreams to figure out what he's getting at, although the second dream is very interesting because it's not the first dream, we're all in the field and your sheaves bow down to my sheep. Okay, that's one thing. But in the second dream, 
the 11th star, the sun and the moon presumably are, would be his parents, I presume, or some kind of parental figures. And the 11 stars would be the 11 brothers. However, it is very striking that whereas the first dream takes place in the field and sheaves, in the second dream, this is somebody who dreams about the entire universe bowing down to him. He puts himself at the center of all existence. So what is that about? Strikes us that, you know, nowadays we might, I mean, it strikes us as a kind of megalomania. The sun, the moon, and, and 11 stars bow down. It's not just about the 11 stars, but the sun and the moon. Now, if we continue a little bit more, then I'll stop and take comments and questions. If we take the next verse, let's scroll down some more. So in the second dream, we're told, Vayisaper Elohim, Next verse. He told his father and he told his brothers. Now it's interesting that the second dream, the brothers don't respond. There's simply no response whatsoever. So Joseph tells his father and his brothers. Why did he tell his father is the question. Is it because he, why? Why mention the father? And I presume he mentions the father. I mean, one possibility is because in that dream, it's not just about the 11 stars, but it's also about the sun and the moon. So besides the 11 stars, there's the sun and the moon. And presumably, one could interpret it that the sun and the moon represent Joseph's parents, which is how Jacob seems to understand it. By Yigar Bo'aviv, his father rebuked him. So it's, here Yaakov steps in, he rebukes him. What kind of dreams do you have? Or he says, are we going to come, right? Are we to come, me and your mother and your brothers, right? To bow down to you? So Jacob interprets that the son and the moon are the mother and the father. Now, Joseph's own mother has actually died. So that leaves open the question, what do you mean your mother? We're believing that question out. Clearly, Yaakov understands, Yaakov interprets the dream. The, the first dream was interpreted by the brothers, right? You're going, to, you're, going to reign, right? you're going to be the king, you're going to be the ruler. In the second dream, it's what? We're going to all come to bow down to you? By Yikanu Boechav, the brothers were jealous. V'yaviv shomaret ha'davar, the father shomaret ha'davar, kept the matter in mind. Now here it's actually very interesting, and after this I will stop for a moment to comments or questions. Rashi's understanding of v'yaviv shomaret ha'davar, the word shomar, by the way, in biblical Hebrew, can mean to remember. Here it means to remember. The father remembered it. The brothers were jealous, but the father remembered. And what's bothering Rashi, actually, Rashi says, remembered means he, he, he actually wanted it to take place. Shamarita Davar, he anticipated that it would actually happen. Because I think what's driving Rashi is the, is the verse, is the contrast between the two things. The brothers were jealous, right? They were jealous, they were angry. 
But Yaviv Shamarita Adavar, the father remembered it, it would not be a real contrast. The two unrelated things. So Rashi understands, of the, but the father, the brothers were jealous and didn't want it to happen. But their father was anticipating that it would happen. Shamarita Adavar. Before we continue, I'll stop and take questions and comments. But I want to make a simple point about Yaviv Shamarita Adavar about Yaakov. On one hand, Yaakov rebukes Joseph. Maybe he waited too long to rebuke Joseph. What is this dream, he says. But in the back of his mind, says Rashi, he remembers it, that is to say, he wants it to take place. And that's actually a very important point because if he wants it to happen, if he wants it to happen, that presumably will disqualify Jacob from being the person who will be able to, 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 to mediate the conflict. Jacob will, beginning in the very next verse, try to resolve the problem. We have an explosive, a dangerous situation. The Torah has used two words to describe the relationship of Joseph and his brothers and their deadly combination. One is sinner and one is kinner. Sinner and kinner. Jealousy and hatred are a deadly combination. <clears throat> so, and on top of that, they don't speak. Sometimes people don't speak, they have nothing to say. Sometimes they don't speak out of anger. Not talking sometimes, I'm so angry I can't talk. So we have here an explosive situation to begin with brothers, rivals, one is favorite, the sinner, this kinner, and Yaakov will attempt, I think, in the next verse, <clears throat> try, to resolve the conflict. The problem will be, apart from the fact that he's probably too late, but the problem will be, you can't be a good mediator if you really want the outcome to be a certain way. And that is gonna be the problem over here. Yaakov is, from one perspective, one of the causes of the problem. And from the other side of it, it will be difficult for Yaakov to resolve the problem. Okay, before we continue, let us stop for a moment and take comments or questions. And then we will continue the story over here of Joseph and the brothers. Are there any comments or questions before we move right on? Yeah, I wanted to say something. Um, right it always, um, I always thought that here, as you pointed out, David, uh, Yosef is totally oblivious to picking up any social cues from his brothers that this might not have been the best thing to do to share so his dreams. And we see growth um, later on when he is in jail and he notices that the faces of Sarah Mashkim and Sarah Ofim are not the way they had been the day before. Right. And that's yes. his opening to speak to them. Had he not noticed the difference in their appearances, they right. would not have told him. It's only sure. because he reads yeah. their faces differently, which was right. he sure. was not able to do here. He did not right. read their faces at all. So right. that's a development also, remember, of his he's part. He's a child in the story. Right. And I don't mean you could be an hour when you're eight, you could be an hour when you're 48 also. But the point is, 
he is the youngest child, and Jacob treats him as as the youngest as a child. child. Uh, right. He's a child. He's the baby then, of the when, family here. When he's in jail, he's already been in Mitzrayim. He's been in the house of Potiphar. He's running an entire estate. Person of enormous power. He's gotten Mrs. Potiphar. He's able to withstand that. He ends up in jail. I mean, you know what it he's is? Matured. It's, right, and it's matured because it's you know it's like. When the brothers come down to Egypt, the verse Torah says, They didn't recognize, he recognized them and they didn't recognize him. And the point of it, among other things, apart from the unexpected, who expects him to be? But there's something else, which is, He had changed. Sometimes you meet people. It happens to be, sometimes you meet somebody, maybe you went to high school with them or something like that. And they're pretty much in the place they were when they were in high school. And you realize that you're in a completely different place. And that's the story of Joseph and the brothers. The fact of the matter is, these shepherds in the land of Canaan are pretty much in the same place. But Joseph has gone through a whole range of experiences, just being in Egypt, and which is a difficult place, and being a slave there, and then moving up in the house of Potiphar and being Egyptian culture, and then Mrs. Potiphar, and then you end up in jail. And you meet people from the political establishment in jail, etc. And then you come out, and then you pharaoh, and you—I you, mean, it's this incredible story about someone who's completely has all these life experiences. That doesn't mean that you've totally forgotten your past, but you're a different person. So your point is very well taken. That there is growth on the part of Joseph throughout his life, and that's what's exciting about Joseph. He is, on one hand, he's a totally different person, and on the other hand, the Chumash will tell us that he sort of he sort of he's able to go back and to, to return to where he comes from. But in going back to where you came from, you're not the same person. It's, you know, it's that's what's interesting. You can never really go back and become the same person because you're not the same person. And when you go back to the same place, it's not going to be the same place for you. That's what's interesting about Yosef. But we're jumping way ahead, but your point is very well taken. I like it very much. It's very true. He notices the, the other. And, and then I want course, to when ask it's, when you. When it's about yourself, it's harder to see it. When it's about someone else, very often we can see when someone else comes to us, we can see something about someone else, but it's not connected to us. But when it's connected to us, we have a much more difficult time to get a, a realistic view of, 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 of see, see reality when we're connected. But well, we, will, we will get there, hopefully. And Good then point. I wanted to ask you, why was he dreaming? They're shepherds. It's, it seemed to me curious that he's dreaming about the wheat. I that would imagine very, they traded for right. the wheat. They didn't that grow wheat. Point. Of course, we're jumping ahead, but I will, you have to remember one thing. And that is, your point is well taken. I have no answer to your question, but here's what I will say. At the end of the day, of course, the reason the brothers will bow down to Joseph, in fact, the whole world bowed down to Joseph, is very simple because he has all the wheat. The point of the Joseph story, which is not a coincidence, Joseph manipulates it that way. He understands a very simple thing, even as a child. He is the most brilliant child, there's no question about that. He understands very simply, if you control the food, if you, have, if you control the economy, and you have a monopoly on the food, they're gonna bow down to you, because the alternative is to starve to death which is exactly what he manipulates later with Paro. He hands over all the food to Paro, 
He says, you guard it, you protect it. And the people go to Joseph, give us food. Got to pay for it. We have no money. Okay, then give, give power all of your cattle. We have no cattle. Okay, they give power all of your land, which of course were Paro's dreams. And that's how Joseph accumulates wealth for Paro. And that's how Joseph accumulates a, a, a position for Joseph. That's why they bow down, because they otherwise they'll starve. So therefore, Joseph understands this, it would appear, when he's 17 years old. Whether he fully grasps, I don't know, but that is the dream. It's the sheaves. You control the sheaves, they will bow down. Let me take a few, we have a few more minutes still, so let me just, uh, yeah, we have yeah. 15 minutes. Let me, let me continue here. I'll stop at the end, we'll give a few more minutes for comments and questions. Verse number 12. Now in verse number 12, the brothers went to, to they're shepherding the father's flock in Shechem, in the town of Shechem. We'll get back to Shechem later. And now the next verse is very striking. A wonderful verse. So let's see, what do we see in verse number 13? Number one. The first thing we see is that the brothers have gone off to shepherd the flock, but Joseph is not with them. And we recall the beginning of chapter 37 when we first meet Joseph. Yosef ben Shva He was the shepherd with his brothers. That's how the chapter begins. That's verse number two. Now we get to verse number 12. The brothers go off to be shepherds, but Joseph is not with them. So you see right straight off the bat, this state, the division between Joseph and the brothers. You see it right here. The brothers have left Joseph behind. They go off without Joseph. And after all, not surprising, first of all, they hate him. And number two, they can't speak to him peaceably. Below Yahu Dabro so now ya Yaakov speaks up, Yisrael speaks up, and he says in verse number 12, verse number 13, are your brothers not in Shechem? Let me send you to them. And Joseph says, Hineni. Okay, let's just unpack this verse now. First of all, jumping to the end of the verse, Hineni, is one of those words that has enormous significance in the book of Breshit in the beginning of Sefer Shemot. It's what Jacob, it's what Avram says at the Akedah. It's what Jacob says when he's about to go down to Egypt. And it's what Moshe says at the burning bush. The fact of the matter is that Hineni is a word that appeared at moments of enormous significance in the, in, in the Torah. Turning points. The Akedah going down to Mitzrayim and the snare are three great turning points in the Torah. So the Torah is saying to us, apart from what Joseph is thinking, whatever he's thinking, the Torah tells us, the Torah is speaking to us, this is a moment of enormous significance. Now, on top of that, the Hineni in all three cases that appeared earlier was a statement that a response to a very difficult demand. The demand or the difficult scene the Akeda. What could be more difficult than the Akeda? And Abraham says, Hineni. 
Jacob going down to Egypt, going down to exile, he named it. Moshe assuming the role as the leader of the people to leave his family behind, to leave Yitro, and to risk his life and to spend his life serving a people that frankly may not appreciate him, that caused his exile, and Moshe says he named So this is a, it's, it's a response to a difficult, a difficult situation, a difficult request. And the fact that Joseph says he named over here means two things. Number one, the Torah is saying, reader, we're coming to a great turning point in, the, in, in our story. And number two, it's something which is not simple. He's sending Joseph into the lion's den. He's sending Joseph to a bunch of people who hate his guts, who hate him and who hate him more and even more. And their brothers and the field and Kai and the heavens all in our, in our consciousness. Nonetheless, Jacob says to Joseph, I want you to go there. And he says something very interesting, which Rashi picked up, which is, are your brothers not in Shechem? Why did he mention Shechem? And here Rashi, Rashi understands it. And I think it's actually the Pshat. That Shechem, among other things, Shechem is the city where brothers defended their sister. The city of brotherly love. And what Jacob is saying to Joseph is something like this. I want you to go to the brothers. They, after all, are still your brothers. Let's see if we can patch things up. They're in Shechem. They understand the idea of brotherliness. Go to Shechem, rely on the brotherliness. And then Jacob says in the next verse, Go and inquire the welfare, the shalom of your brethren, the shalom of the flock. Remember, it said earlier, so what Jacob may be doing over here says, look, speak to them peaceably, see how they're doing, demonstrate your affection for them, your concern for them, for their work, and, and, and then report back to me. In other words, don't report back to me what you did in the beginning of the story, report back to me that there's, they're well, how well they're doing, what concerns they may have. That I think is Jacob's idea. He's what he's counting on is first of all, Shem, brotherliness. They're still your brothers. And second of all, speak in such a way that you can create a sense of shalom. They can't speak to you, Bishalom. Maybe you talk to them, Bishalom. Maybe we can bring the two of you back together. Maybe we can sort of cool the, the tension between you. On the other hand, on the other hand, we have the verb, the words, the two words in verse number 14. Vashiveni Davar, bring me back a word. And Vashiveni Davar does recall for us the very end of verse number, uh, verse number uh, 11, Aviv Shamarit HaDavar, but the father remembered the Davar or wanted the Davar to take place. So the word Davar also reminds us of another point, which is that on a certain level, Yaakov wants, wants them to bow down to Joseph which is problematic. But fundamentally, what Yaakov is banking on is hope, hoping that the word shalom, bring back words of peace, bring back a nice report, show your concern, and after all, at the end of the day, you'll meet them in Shrem. They are your brothers. I know it's dangerous, but we have to bring the family together. That, I think, is what Yaakov is banking on.
The problem is, and this is the last verse we'll do now, and I'll take your comments and questions. The problem is, and, and, and Yaakov sends Joseph, he sends him where he is in the valley of Hebron, and Joseph goes to Shrem. And a man finds Joseph, who was lost in the field. And the man says to Joseph, What did you seek? You seem lost. I'm looking for my brothers, my brethren. I seek my brethren. Tell me, where, where are they shepherding? They've departed from here. I've heard them say we have gone to Dotan. And Joseph leaves Shechem and he, and he finds them in Dotan. Now we'll continue with this next week, but here's the point. When Rashi picked up, he doesn't find them in Shechem. He doesn't find them in the city. And why does he not find them in Shechem? There was, one gets the sense, if we would find them in Shechem, maybe Jacob is right. Shechem represents brotherliness, but they've already left Shechem. The train has arrived too late. Why did Joseph arrive too late? Which is the theme of the story. Jacob is trying to patch it up, it's too late. Joseph arrives too late. And the reason Joseph arrives too late, says the Torah is, Toeba Sodeh, he was lost. And as we know from our study of Breshit, to get lost, to'eh, is not having a bad sense of direction. The people who are to'eh is not just a sense of direction, it's some kind of a moral failing. Hagar got lost in the desert, doesn't mean she's simply lost. Vatelech vateta. Abraham says, ever since we've been wandering aimlessly, I always said, say, you're my, say I'm your brother. And now we have Joseph getting lost. So the Chumash is saying this tragedy, this inability to reconcile is because it's too late. Joseph arrived there too late and his arriving too late is a failure of Joseph, which is hard, does not exonerate the brother's behavior. But he's not in Shechem, he's in Dotan. And whatever Dotan means, we know one thing for sure, it's bad. The best evidence that Dotan probably means quarrel. But we know in the Torah, the two main troublemakers in the biblical, in the Torah story of Israel in the desert, Dotan Vaviram, the two troublemakers. And being in Dotan is a bad sign. So yes, it might have worked out, had things worked out differently, had Jacob stepped in earlier, had Jacob been more impartial, had Jacob not shown his favoritism, had Joseph not told them about his dreams, had Joseph perhaps not brought the evil report, had the brothers not been involved in jealousy and hatred, kinna and sinna, and by Yosifu and by Yosifu and all of that, one can wonder what might have happened. At the end of the day, we know from the book of Joshua that when Joseph is finally, his bones are brought back to the land, he's buried in the town of Shechem. He does reunite with his brethren in Shechem in the book of Joshua. Uh, but that's not, in other words, maybe Jacob wasn't wrong. If he meets them in Shechem, it's going to be okay. But of course, the train has arrived, you know, 
train has left already. He's come too late to the station. We'll see what happens next week. We'll continue with this theme of the dissolution of the family. And then, of course, uh, that story is a great story, obviously. And we will deal with it in some more depth. Let me take, we have a couple more minutes. If people have comments or questions, please speak up. And then we'll continue next week with Joseph and his brothers or in the chat. Either way. Yes, Tova? Yeah. Um, just two things that I would like you to comment on. First of all, you know, when they tell us that Yosef was 17 years old and he had these dreams, he was not yet an interpreter of dreams. And I think that's why he went and told it to his brothers. He told it to his fathers, to his father. And I think Yaakov realized, he interpreted the dream and realized that the family would be dependent on, on Yosef. Um, but I, I don't think that, that, that at, it, I don't think if, 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 if he was able to interpret the dreams at that point, that he would have shared them to, to create animosity. And another thing that I'd like to hear from you is about the Ben Sukunim, that Yosef was a Ben Sukunim, but Sarah emphasizes the fact that Avraham is a Zakain before the birth of Yitzchak. Right, so in terms of the first point, you know, it is true that Joseph doesn't interpret the dreams. The question is, the dreams seem rather self-evident. You know, in other words, it doesn't sound like when Joseph later interprets Pharaoh's dreams, no one else can interpret those dreams. We don't understand the dream. But he's in this older. Particular case, it seems to the brothers, it seems somewhat, we're going to bow down to you. You're going to be the king, which is what the dream does sound like. And then the fact that Joseph told the, dream, the second dream to his father, which involves the sun and the moon, does suggest to me that he has at least some inkling that the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars refer to Jacob. And to, the, and to his brothers, whether he fully understands the nature of it. By the way, we still have to understand the second dream about the sun, the moon, and the stars. We'll get there. But that's, that's an interesting. So again, I don't know. It is interesting that whereas Joseph is the great interpreter of dreams, in the, both in jail and to Pharaoh, in this particular case, he doesn't interpret his own dreams. Maybe that's interesting that sometimes we can interpret the other guy's dreams we may not be able to interpret our own dreams. That's, that's certainly a possibility. In terms of the Ben Zikunim, who will, uh, Zakain, I, I alluded to this earlier, that the, the Midrashim Ben Zikunim, and it's possibly even shot, I don't know, that they understand Zakain over here as, as someone who was wise, not just aging, he's, he's a, He's Ben Zikunim. He's a son born in the old age of, in Jacob's old age. And as I pointed out earlier, he's not that much young, younger than anybody else. He's maybe two years younger because there were 12 kids born in 20 years. Right? Of course, they were born to four different women. But no matter how you slice it, he can't be more than two or three years at most younger than anybody else. So the Ben Zikunim has to mean something else. It, it could mean his youngest child. And remember that for Jacob, it's probably his last child. There's no evidence that Jacob anticipates having any more children. We know Rachel wants more children. 
But for Yaakov, the moment Joseph is born, he says, mission accomplished, I'm going to go home. It's Rachel that wants the additional child. She takes the trophim and all that. So it's possible that, could be that Ben Zukunim means more than just chronological age. Because, you know, your young, youngest child, you may have a certain connect, like your oldest child, you have a certain feeling about your oldest child, the first child or whatever it is. It's, it could be maybe one year older than the other one, or whatever, 14 months older, but still the oldest and the youngest is the same way. It's also possible, and the Midrashim takes Zikunim as a Zakain. Remember, in, 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 in many cultures, with age, there's also wisdom because it's about experience of life. It's, an under, it's seeing a bigger picture. It's, you've seen many things. Uh, in, in, in very traditional cultures, older people, if they're bright to begin with, are seen as much brighter as they get older. With age is wisdom. Uh, even in today's world, in some of the more traditional, in the, in the, in the world of the Haredim, for example, they value age. Age is something to be revered. Old age is revered. Uh, and it's true in, in many, many cultures. It's less true in the United States of America, which is all about kids and the, how kids are so smart. But in actual, typical, I would say, deeply religious cultures and, and, and traditional cultures, it's exactly the opposite. What's, what's revered is, is wisdom. And the Torah makes that okay. The Torah makes, makes that clear in many, many places. So it's possible Ben Zukunim, he sees in Joseph, which certainly is the case, a very wise child. He sees the great potential for Joseph, which is true. Joseph is quite brilliant, obviously. Um, but the question is, how does that fit in with the rest of the family? So we'll have to see that. But that, those are two different points about the Ben Zikunin. Uh, okay, let me take one last comment and we'll stop and then we'll continue next week with the story here. Uh, anybody else? I thought there was one more comment. Okay, Chai, is there anything else? No, I think uh, we have, um, Fran has her, her uh, hand raised. I think she'd like to ask a question. Um, ah, sorry, you're muted, Fran. Yeah. Hi, um, I'd like to ask a question about the Hineni. Is this a, yes. uh, a false Hineni, perhaps like Jacob, um, said when he was in the house of Lavan, or is this, right. did he understand what he was getting into, do you think? I, do, I don't see this as, you, it's a very excellent question. You, what you're referring to is the, friends referring to the Hineni that Jacob said in, when he reports his dreams to his wives in chapter 31. Um, that Hineni is a false Hineni in the sense that it's, it's not the ultimate Hineni, which Jacob says when he goes down to Egypt. There is, it's not totally false because the Hineni over there is, we have to leave. And the leaving from the house of Lavan is significant, but yes, it's not certainly the real Hineni. I don't see this here as a false Hineni. I don't see it necessarily as the Hineni of the Akedah, but as I said, I think it's two things. I think it's a recognition on Joseph's part, see the Hineni is on two different levels. One is in terms of Joseph, the character. One's in terms of the Chumash. The Chumash, apart from the people speaking, the, the, the narrative voice that the Torah is saying to us, the reader, what we're about, what's about to happen is of enormous significance. The sale of Joseph, Joseph being in Egypt is a story of enormous significance because it really sets up the whole exile. 
and it raises the question of how the family is, it ruptures the family. On the other hand, I think it's a genuine hinani in that Joseph is saying to his father, I know the danger. I know the danger. I'm gonna do what you tell, I'm gonna do what you tell me to do out of loyalty to you, despite the danger. I think that is one way to read it. The question is a good question because we don't know to what extent Joseph is aware of what's going on around him. That's one of the big questions that hangs over the story. Does he really know how much they hate him? Or is he sort of oblivious to that? I think that he may suggest that he's aware at this point in any way, look, they've all picked up and left without him. He used to go with them, and now they're checking out without Joseph. Their brothers went to Shechem without Joseph. So I think it's certainly a possibility that Joseph is aware of the danger, that Jacob's trying to make things right with the double shalom, Hashiveni Davar, with the Shechem. So I think a, certainly a, a potential reading is that it's not false. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the sense that Joseph is aware of the danger and says, I'll do it anyway. But it's, but that's whatever we, I'm not sure about that. What I, I am quite sure of is that the Torah signals to us that the Hineni over here is of great significance. And it does suggest there's a real danger. There's okay. a genuine danger over here, which of course the story bears out because he arrives too late and the brothers plan to kill him, actually. Not to sell him, to kill him. The brothers will kill him. And if not for the caravan passing by and Judah's suggestion, they in fact will kill him. Ruben says, throw him into the pit and he'll die in the pit. They're gonna kill him. Whether they kill him with their own hands or in the pit, he's gonna die. So there is incredible danger which the Torah is signaling. Um, so we'll continue this story next week. Uh, you can always email me, dsilveratrisha.org. And we look, look forward to continuing this uh, Great story. Okay, so thank you all, and uh, we'll continue. Thank you, Rabbi Silber. Enjoy Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you so much, Rabbi Silber, and thanks to everyone who joined. Um, we're going to continue with our spring programming tonight at 8 p.m. with a session from Rabbi Shlomo Zakir called The Scope of Torah. Uh, and you can find more information on this class and uh, all our other classes at trisha.org slash classes. Um, thank you again, Rabbi Silver, and see everyone soon.